Break out your beach towel and bag yourself a spot on the deck of the HMS Völkerfreundschaft. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that takes you on a leisurely cruise across the North Sea and back. Settle back in your deck chair as we plot our course through the treacherous straits of British-German relations, past the scylla of tasteless Nazi jokes and the charybdis of constipated earnestness. I'm Katja Hoyer, a German historian based in Sussex. And I'm Oliver Moody, a British journalist living in Berlin. Today we go on a wander above the sea fog and cast a misty-eyed glance at our two nations' literary and artistic past. Prepare yourself for a journey into the sublime, the emotional, the sentimental, the beautiful world of... Bickles novels? No, Oliver, those are probably verboten where you live. Besides, our distinguished listeners have come to expect much more sophisticated conversation from us than we could give them by discussing the respective merits of the Sopwith Camel and the Fokker E1. Now, where was I? Ah, yes. Prepare yourself for a journey into the sublime, the emotional, the sentimental, the beautiful world of the romantics. Now that the mood lights are dimmed again, will you please set the scene, Oliver? Who and what were the romantics, and why is this an excellent topic for our Anglo-German podcast? (sighs) Oh, Lord. I'm going to get into so much trouble, whatever I say here. Because... There are writers who did stuff you could call romantic, but who would have hated to be labelled romantics. And there are all these canonical romantic writers who did a lot of stuff that had nothing to do with romanticism. But um, here we go, and this is going to be a gross and partisan oversimplification. But I think you have to start with an 18th century Swiss philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's many things. But in this particular context, he's sort of the intellectual founding father of this new literary emphasis on the natural, the senses, the wilderness, and above all, on the individual and their feelings. And Rousseau's writing has an absolutely colossal influence on Germany. And shortly before his death in uh, 1778, you can see the emergence of a German school of literature called Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress, which is all about the power of nature, both in the sense of the natural world and in the sense of human nature, and above all, the power of raw emotions. The most famous figures associated with this movement are Goethe and Schiller, although later in their careers they kind of mature a bit and turn away towards a more classical style. And just to make things even more complicated, you've got a parallel German romantic movement emerging in Jena. That's your alma mater, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to that a few times. So um, this, this, this group in Jena is sort of focused on uh, people like the poet Nefales and the Schlegel brothers. And in Britain, romanticism really only catches on a couple of decades later, at the very end of the 18th century, when the country is in the feverish grip of the Industrial Revolution, and the countryside is getting depopulated as people move into the cities, and there's this political ferment in the aftermath of the French Revolution. And British romanticism doesn't come out of nowhere. You can see some of its roots in earlier 18th century writers like William Blake or Thomas Gray, or the so-called sentimental novelists like Horace Walpole and Lawrence Stern. But then you get this kind of visceral literary revolt against all the artificiality and alienation and urbanness of contemporary life. And it crystallises around the Lake Poets, the likes of Wordsworth, Coleridge and Southey, but also includes people like Walter Scott. And these guys are all mainlining Goethe and Schiller, so there's definitely a line of influence from Germany to Britain. And then along comes a generation of badly behaved young men who come of age around the end of the Napoleonic Wars. This is the Byrons and the Shelleys and the Keatses. And their influence has an incredibly long afterlife that sort of even persists into the present day um, to poets like uh, John Burnside. How did I do? I haven't even mentioned painting or music or female writers, have I? (laughs) I think that was all right, actually. A nice little uh, 
with a stop tour. I'll take that. So, Kesha, who's your favourite romantic? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. <clears throat> that old sorcerer has vanished and for once has gone away. Spirits called by him now banished. My commands shall soon obey. Every step and saying that he used, I know. And with sprites obeying, my arts I will show. Oh, no. This is the beginning of one of... I know what this of, is. Yes. Oh, yes. This is The Sorcerer's Apprentice, one of the best poems, ballads ever written, in my opinion. I just absolutely love it. Um, it was written by uh, Wolfgang uh, von Goethe, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who you uh, obviously mentioned as one of the uh, sort of most famous, I suppose, representatives of the um, Romantic movement uh, in 1797. Uh, the whole thing has got 14 stanzas, and I had to learn the whole thing by heart when I was at school and recited as part of a, a German literature assessment. That's and great. I still love it. I think that's, that's so something i'm really sad that, that um, that's sort of gone away in in the british education system i'd have loved to have learned poetry by heart. no i think that i'm not sure whether they still do it in germany but it's certainly a, a standard part of of your sort of yeah literature education or german education um you know comparative here to english obviously um, so sorry, sorry to be but, um, yeah. an absolute ponce but is it strictly accurate to call Goethe a romantic um not so much. I mean, there, there's a debate obviously around that because there's this whole idea of sort of, you know, uh, uh, Weimar classicism as well. Um, and, and to what extent does this actually um, uh, link into one another? How are they related? But um, for this, for the, I just wanted to talk about him really. <laughs> I'm just going to make him a romantic here. I mean, there's obviously other themes in, in there as well. And, and they do move away from this over time as well, from the romantic ideas that you mentioned earlier. Um, but there's certainly a lot of that in him and also his younger friend um, Schiller who we'll um, hopefully also get to a little bit later um, in the sense that they also focus on on sort of raw emotion and, and uh, uh, irrationality over rationality of you know of the old rationality of the Enlightenment movement that came um, before. Um, but I, I really like Goethe because he's just so versatile. I mean, there's the, that um, Sorcerer's Apprentice poem, which I just mentioned, which on the surface of it seems pretty trivial. So for, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's it's basically the idea is that the Sorcerer's Apprentice get, gets left um, alone. The, his master walks out and he thinks he's going to, to try all of the spells now that he was never allowed to do and, and unleash his forces really that he doesn't understand. And I think that, you know, whilst it's amusing as well because there's sort of broomsticks going mad and the whole house is, is you know, descending into chaos. Um, but on a more deep level it's really about this idea of, of kind of just letting go and, and doing things and being impulsive and then having the consequences of that to deal with uh, sort of afterwards. But my other favourite by him and is perhaps one of the most important works of German literature overall is, is uh, Faust which is his magnum opus um, which is about um, a character Faust who is really quite like Goethe himself in many ways wants to learn about everything loves science art literature philosophy um, but he despairs a little bit at the sort of vanity almost of intellectual pursuits and how he never really quite gets to learn everything and finds out about everything. It's almost like a Sisyphus task. Every time you, you find something new, you sort of start again from scratch and he gets frustrated to the point where he contemplates suicide um, and then goes on a walk. Um, and on that walk, when he comes back, uh, he sees a little poodle following him into his office and once they're in his office uh, the poodle shows who he really is um, namely the demon uh, Mephistopheles 
And Faust makes a pact with him, so the demon offers him that he can have all the knowledge he wants and he'll help him on Earth acquire all the knowledge that there is. But in return, once he's reached peak and he's absolutely satisfied that he's learned everything that there is to learn on Earth, he will die in that moment um, and become a servant of the of the devil. I feel like there are so many academics in the humanities who take that deal right now. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say that ever ever since I first read it, I'm waiting for that poodle to stroll into my study. <laughs> I think it's, it's a great deal, really. I, I think I would have taken that, definitely. Can I ask a question? Go on. And um, this question is probably going to get my German residency cancelled. But what is it with the Germans and Goethe? You've got so many brilliant writers in the German canon. And... Goethe obviously had an extraordinary facility with language. And as you said, Faust is wonderful. I really like the Wilhelm Meister novels. But also, The Sorrows of Young Werther? Seriously? <laughs> yeah, I, I must admit that is perhaps his most dreary and depressing piece of work. I mean, it's just tortured generations of, of school students over the years. And, and that would certainly not be on my favourite list either. So for those, but for some reason, it's... Yeah. For those who haven't had the wretched misfortune of reading Young Werther... Um, I should, I'll give a quick explanation and, and sorry about all the spoilers that are coming up he kills himself um, so Werther <laughs> is basically about this young guy who's he's closely based on the young Goethe who um, ponces around a fictional village in Hesse with his copy of Homer and his yellow waistcoat and his blue coat and he falls in love with a sensible young lady called Charlotte but here's the catch um, Charlotte is already engaged to be married and being a man of suffocatingly bourgeois moral scruples Werther knows that they can never be together and he ends up committing suicide with his love rival's hunting pistol and it's just awful in my opinion one of the best pieces of literary criticism ever written was um, William Makepeace Thackeray the British satirist did a short poem on the book would you like to hear a bit of it? yeah go for it so Thackeray writes so Werther sighed and pined and ogled and his passion boiled and bubbled till he blew his silly brains out and no more by it was troubled. Charlotta, having seen his body, born before her on a shutter, like a well-conducted person, went on cutting bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up in a nutshell. I mean, I had to study this at A-level for half a year and we were just all sat there as sort of young German teenagers wondering what that's all about. I mean, there is a problem that isn't really a problem and you just wonder how he sat there writing this depressing long piece about, um, well, nothing really, you know, certainly not when you look at it from, from a modern uh, point of view. Um, yeah, but somehow it's ended, as you say, the, the sort of German canon and it's never really gone away. Um, well, who's your favourite romantic then, if you don't like Goethe? I'm going to come, I'm coming across as such a crashing philistine in this episode, but I have a real problem with the British romantics, which is that I think a lot of their poetry is fundamentally dishonest. Because if, it, if it's all supposed to be about being true to your feelings, then why do all of the feelings have to be so relentlessly serious and noble and grandiose? Why can't they just write about the feelings people really have, like boredom or petty jealousy? Um, but there are, there are two things I really like about the British romantics. And one of them is how much they loathed each other most of the time. Um, so Byron came up with one of my all-time favourite literary put-downs on Keats, where he said, um, such writing is a sort of mental masturbation. He is always frigging his imagination. I don't mean that he is indecent, but viciously soliciting his own ideas into a state which is neither poetry nor anything else but a bedlam of vision produced by raw pork and opium. And the second thing <laughs> I like about the British romantics is when they shut up about their bloody feelings and get stuck into real subjects like sex and politics. So you've got um, Byron's Don Juan, which is this sprawling, totally original and hilarious flight of fancy where he's essentially destroying all of his literary rivals and pretty much the entirety of English society on this picaresque sex odyssey. 
Um, and then you've got, um, you know, my favourite Shelley poem is The Mask of Anarchy, which is his response to the 1819 Peterloo massacre. And he's trying to stir up the population to this non-violent revolution against Lord Liverpool's government. And there's just some absolutely fantastic poetry in there. Um, there's, a bit, there's a bit on Lord Eldon, who was Liverpool's reactionary Lord Chancellor. And Shelley writes, Next came fraud, and he had on, like Eldon, an ermined gown. His big tears, for he wept well, turned to millstones as they fell. And the little children, who round his feet played to and fro, thinking every tear a gem, had their brains knocked out by them. That's amazing. <laughs> I just don't get why. I mean, as you say, the, the English romantics just take themselves so seriously most of the time. I think that's maybe, and perhaps a little counterintuitively, we can ask our, our expert later about this as well. Um, but there's certainly a, a trend in when you compare the two, whereby the German romantics tend to be a bit lighter, a bit more subtle, a bit more funny, really, even in their in their take on, on this idea of kind of raw emotion, whilst the English ones are, are you know, very, very serious about, about their own feelings. And as you say, it just almost is an involuntary comical looking at it now in hindsight, just, you know, they're, they're everyday emotions that people feel and, and they're taking them far too uh, seriously. But on a, on a lighter note, then I think I should make a stand here, as you say, for my alma mater, uh, the Friedrich Schiller University, and, and who are obviously named after uh, one of the great uh, romantics, uh, German romantics, Friedrich Schiller. Um, it always makes me laugh. Right next to um, Jena is this little town, uh, Weimar, which is uh, obviously perhaps better known even for various different um, historical reasons. Um, but in Weimar is the German National Theatre, and in front of that theatre is um, a statue or a double statue of uh, Goethe and Schiller because the two of them were friends and had a very productive working relationship. Um, if somewhat complicated because they argued a lot as well. Um, but Goethe is really, uh, he's 10 years older and a head shorter than, than Schiller. And there's this kind of stocky, uh, quite, you know, sort of podgy little man. And then there's tall, handsome, lanky Schiller. And they've just decided that that would look far too ridiculous and it would certainly make the, the grand old Goethe look ridiculous if they had the two statues stood side by side like that. And so they just decided to make them roughly the same size and roughly the same statue, <laughs> completely kind of altering the, you know, the way that they would have looked. Um, and those two are still stood in front of the, the National Theatre in Weimar, which is sort of just a, a short way away from um, Jena. Where the um, Weimar Republic was founded, in that, in that very yeah, theatre, absolutely. Right? In that very theatre, yes. And I think that's also partially the reason why it is the National Theatre even now. Um, but it's also where Goethe and Schiller did a lot of their work um, and, and is sort of associated with German um, literature and thinking and philosophy. That is incidentally one of the reasons why the Weimar Republic was founded there, because it was felt after the First World War that they needed to move away from this very serious and dark militarism of the of the war and they didn't want that associated with their new democratic republic and, and would rather be associated with the romantics and, and the sort of great um, figures of literature like Goethe and Schiller and so it was founded in Weimar. Um, yeah, but I really like Schiller. He's, he's just, he's light and serious at the same time. So most of the stuff that he wrote, uh, as you say, is part of the Sturm und Drang movement. So very uh, intense. Uh, Die Räuber, for example, is one of my favorite, mm. The Robbers. Um, it's just brilliant. I mean, it's it's got everything. It's about two aristocratic brothers who couldn't be any more different in character. One is sort of 
brash and out there and arrogant and the other one is is sort of described as ugly and a bit shy and and, and sort of his father's least favorite son and the two of them battle it out over their father's um, inheritance and it's just it sounds a bit trivial but it's full of sort of drama and and it's got a surprising amount of violence in it given uh, you know the the sort of sensibilities of the time but it's got everything that you want from a modern drama plus very sort of serious concepts like rationality versus emotion should you head rule over your heart or vice versa and also the sort of concept of law versus the individual where do, where do people fit in in society but it's all packaged into this really quite fast-paced um narrative so I, I really liked it and enjoyed it did you read any romantics or classics at school that you you enjoyed or did you hate all of them do you know what the um the english literature curriculum at least when when i was going through it sort of 15 16 years ago was just rubbish it's designed for people on the assumption that teenagers instinctively hate literature um and have the attention span of a dragonfly so we just had these, these sort of very fragmentary bits of poetry. So I think they might have been, you know, Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn and probably some ghastly bits of Wordsworth's Preludes. Um, what about you? Um, I, I enjoyed most of them, as I just said, I somehow, despite being forced to read this stuff. But I'm not sure I'm typical, to be honest, <laughs> in that respect. But I did enjoy most of them. What I didn't enjoy, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, is one of the most popular German authors, Heinrich Heine who um, has just become a bit of a poster boy for German literature. And I think my my teenage self instinctively railed against the idea that he's just held up as this shining example of German thinking and and German um, art. Um, He turned away from the romantics in the 1820s um, and was sort of trying to make light of it and and fun of it in in ways that I didn't enjoy because as I was just saying, I enjoyed most of the romantics. So for example, he wrote stuff like this where he was taking the mickey out of of the um, obsession of the romantics with, with landscape and feeling. So he wrote this, a mistress stood by the sea, sighing long and anxiously, she was so deeply stirred by the setting sun. My Fräulein, be gay. This is an old play. Ahead of you it sets, and from behind it returns. <laughs> sort of saying, well, it's just the sun setting and rising. What are you getting excited about? <laughs> and I just didn't like the way that he was sort of dispelling all of all of the sort of misty-eyedness of the romantics, and that's why I, I just didn't enjoy him very much. And there had to, of course, be a, a Heine theater and Heine statues everywhere, and there's a Heine university. Uh, and he was a this, there's this kind of huge wave of edu- adulation towards him, east and west, and Germany, um, certainly since the sort of late 1960s, 1970s, when he was rediscovered. And there's something just in me, I think, that railed against that to, to some extent. Well, given how controversial and eccentric and varied the characters of the Romantic period were, it's perhaps hardly surprising that um, their legacy um, and present-day perception is quite controversial too, isn't it? That's right. Um, last month, a Museum of Romanticism opened in Frankfurt, and I was I was really surprised that it was the first one of its kind in Germany. And I think this reluctance to celebrate romanticism and its legacy in, in, in some parts of German culture might have something to do with the notion that the romantics were somehow part of this so-called special path of German chauvinism that led inexorably into Nazism. Um, there's a famous story about this, um, this giant oak tree on the summit of the Attersburg mountain um, beneath whose branches Goethe supposedly used to sit on his country walks out of Weimar and there's a legend that he might have written part of Faust there. And um, when the SS came along and built the Buchenwald 
concentration camp on the site in 1937. They chopped down all the beech trees that gave the place its name, but kept this Goethe oak as a symbol of Germany's glorious tradition of closeness to nature. And in fact, they called the camp Buchenwald rather than Ettersburg because the name Ettersburg was felt to be too closely associated with Goethe and it might sort of tar his legacy or something. And, and this um, oak tree is just a stump today. It was, it was burnt down by an Allied firebomb in 1944. But it's sort of become a symbol, I think, of, of this misguided idea that German history can be reduced to a single line going all the way from Goethe to Goebbels. And I, I don't know what you think. I don't have a lot of time for that theory, personally. I don't think it's Goethe's fault that his, his, his legacy was culturally appropriated by the Nazis. No, absolutely not. And it goes back to the idea that somehow everything that happened in German history before and after the Nazis has something to do with the Nazis. Either it leads towards it, leads towards it or it, it springs out of it. But one way or another, there's just the Nazis are sat there in, in German history sucking everything into their orbit and, and I really don't think that romanticism had anything to do with it if anything I think we're falling back into Nazi tropes if we do this because that's exactly what Hitler would have liked to assume that that they were kind of just forerunners of of Germanness and, and he was spinning that narrative and, and to fall back into the same thing I think is is playing into their hands rather than you know reclaiming other parts of German history and particularly German literature but I feel in I feel in Britain romanticism has also got a bit of a bad rep. I mean, it's, it's sort of seen as, I feel, sort of trivial um, because it's, it's obsessed with people's own feelings and nature and, and all of these sorts of things rather than with the uh, sort of rationality that we now value. Um, but I think it's it's underestimated a little bit, given that it, it is actually quite revolutionary in many ways and also quite modern, um, as we'll hopefully see in the second part, um, not least in the fact that it provided an early platform for women to express themselves in, in art um, and for the first sort of women intellectuals to come um, out into the open and, and talk about their ideas and, and their um yeah, sort of intellectual. Yeah, I mean, uh, discussion. I feel like it's it's the memory of it is very patchy today. You've got poets like Southey who just fallen completely out of the cultural radar. I think, and then I feel I feel that there are you know bits and pieces of Coleridge and Wordsworth that people have have clung onto and that have really survived and are probably indelible. But um, it is funny how, how bits of romanticism have just sort of rotted away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's time to leave the lofty heights of 18th century poetry for a crash landing in the mundane world of 21st century advertising. Bitte bleiben Sie dran. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. 
Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that puts your leitmotif back into your poetry. Here comes our regular reminder that we would love to hear from you. Please send us your comments, corrections and compliments. No metaphors or euphemisms required. Our Twitter handle is at Tommy's Jerry's. Now, let's travel a couple of hundred years back in time where we've agreed to meet our distinguished guest, Dr. Joanna Raisbeck of St. Hilda's College, Oxford. Joanna's work has recently been awarded the Klaus Heine Prize, which the University of Frankfurt awards to the best experts on the Romantics each year. And in this case, it was for her dissertation on the German Romantic poet Carolina von Gunderrode. Joanna, welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So what is it about the German Romantics that appeals to you so much? That's an amazing question. I think for me, it's partly the period um, itself. This romanticism then spans the 1790s, mid to late 1790s to around the 1830s. In the German context, that's a period of absolutely seismic changes. We have the fallout from the French Revolution, the Restoration. We have the liberal hopes that that are sort of aroused by the French Revolution, how they're disappointed by the terror. And then we have a sort of fall, fall, as it were, into conservatism with the Restoration and then post-1806. So with the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, we start to see the first stirrings of what we'd call nationalism in the German context. So it's a really amazing period to look at. What that means is that you get a very, you don't get a cohesive sense of what romantics are. Romantics can be liberal, romantics can be conservative as well, romantics can be nationalist, but they can be nationalist in all different sort of senses. Now, for me, looking at the literature of the period, what interests me or what first interested me was actually the fact I couldn't understand what what the texts were about. So I first read Novalis as an undergraduate, and that's the pseudonym for Friedrich von Hardenberg, one of the most important early German romantics. And he, when he comes out with lines such as we're looking for the un we're looking for the unconditioned and we can only find the conditioned I thought well that sounds great but I have no idea what's going on <laughs> and this is something that's very typically romantic is particularly of early romanticism is to have these almost gnomic ideas or what appeared to be gnomic ideas at first and then you really have to think on them and try to come to understand them in this context with that statement about we're looking for the unconditioned and we've you know we 
only find the condition. That's Novalis thinking about philosophy. And that for me was really intriguing that literature in this period is really deeply embedded with philosophical questions. That doesn't mean it's abstract and distant from the world per se, but it's trying to find ways to solve problems that philosophy can't solve within itself. So from Immanuel Kant to people like Johann Gottlieb Fichte. So that's what first led me to the Romantics. And also potentially how the early German Romantics and the later Romantics, and we'll come, probably come on to talk about someone like Hoffmann, are also interested in scientific development, developments as well. Um, and you have, say, the discovery of, I think, ultraviolet light then by um, Johann Wilhelm Ritter, who was associated with the Romantics. So there's a lively interplay between literary, philosophical and scientific concerns that makes it very exciting. Well, it seems to be quite a wide, wide field then. So there's obviously the sciences involved in it, philosophy, literature, art, the visual arts later, music even. Um, so is it even possible to pin the German romantics down to central themes? What, what are they all about, really? That's, I mean, the the problem of looking at romanticism in general is the more that you look at it, the less coherent it appears to be. So if I were to try and pin it down to a couple of concepts, then... There tends to be a criticism of hyper-rationality, so a problem of how we can understand the world. And what about the human faculty of reason? That's an idea that's often associated with the Enlightenment. Now, for people like Novalis and also for Gunderode, then reason itself or rationality is actually not a good way of understanding the world if it's the only way in which we think we can understand the world. And there's this thesis of the disenchantment of the world that, that can be then readily applied to romantic and the romanticism's response is to poeticize the world in response, to sort of unlock all the faculties that we might have forgotten about as humans if we just over-focus on reason and rationality. And you mentioned the visual arts, which is very useful because we do really see a valorization of art in this period in the 1790s, where art itself and the experience of art takes on a quasi-religious quality. And as, as, as you said, with the visual arts, we have a lively interest also in the Italian renaissance that comes through so Raphael becomes a real model for some of the early romantics too I think in terms of other, one other feature I could mention is a real interest in self-reflexivity so there's a play by Ludwig Tico der Gestiefelter Karte, The Puss in Boots, which is breaks the fourth wall, essentially. Uh, we have the audience is actually a character in the play and comments on what's going on. So there's a, the, so part of the valorization of art and the artistic experience also leads to this question of what reflecting on what art is, what the experience of it is, and into these comic moments or these ironic moments as well. And so that would probably be the first things that come to mind. But this is all, of course, there are so many other things I could mention that make romanticism <laughs> particularly romantic. And we see quite similar strands of developments in, in England as well, don't we? But why, why does this happen earlier in Germany when compared to England? Some people have suggested that the sort of English variety based itself on what is happening in Germany. Is, is that the case or are they independent things or why is this happening earlier in Germany? Oh, that's an extremely good question. Um, so, so you should probably qualify that by saying that the English and German romanticisms are often seen as the two earlier uh, forms of romanticism. So French or Russian romanticism are really much later. Probably the difference in the German context is that um, when it comes about in the mid to late 1790s, it's 
a group of people in the university town of Jena who, so Novalis and the Schlegel brothers and others who then come together and it's the most sort of extraordinary moment of creativity. It's essentially an amazing historical happenstance. They are also responding to uh, German classicism, Weimar classicism. Now Weimar and Jena are very close to one another in central Germany. So so classicism is then Goethe and Schiller and in Jena we have people like Novalis and the Schlegels and there's a very complicated relationship between the two but clearly there is also a sense in which the development of a classicism stimulates a response, not necessarily an oppositional response, but certainly a response in the Romantics. So that would be a sort of local understanding of it, why it might be slightly earlier. And both English and German Romanticism are in, interested in how do we respond to the French Revolution. I would probably say also on the point of how did they influence one another uh, the reception could be somewhat delayed. So you have people like Coleridge, who was very interested in what the German romantics were doing and what other German writers were doing, including people like Jean-Paul Richter. But the political implications of some of the things that the romantics were doing or some of the, the German intellectuals were doing at the time were not necessarily welcomed in England at the time, is my understanding. So it's maybe a slightly delayed reception. Um, but certainly they are they are relatively close together, and I can't really unpick why why does it you know why do Coleridge and then Wordsworth start off a little bit later with the lyrical ballads. And um, unlike some of the British Romantic poets, Catch and I were discussing earlier, the German Romantic movement is is often lauded for its wit and humour. Do you happen to have an example up your sleeve? I think my prime example to go to, and it's a name I mentioned before, and that's Idiar Hoffmann, who's a little bit later, sort of 1810s, 1820s. And his uh, second novel, second final and unfinished novel, is called The Life and Times of the Tomcat Moor, Lebensansichten des Kater Moor. And, um, well, he's actually taking an English model. He's, he's, he's working from Lawrence Stern. But the whole idea of it, so what makes it so fun, is the autobiography of a tomcat. But it's also, it starts off and we find out that it's a book that is incomplete and also that the editor of the book received this manuscript from the tomcat, thinking this is going to be his autobiography. He gets it printed and then discovers when he gets the proofs, no, it's not just Carter Moore's story. It's also interpolated with a completely different text. So what we have is this mad text that switches from one story to another at a moment's notice. And we get these comic juxtapositions that happen because of that. And we can even see that at the start of the novel where there's an editor's preface apologizing for the fact that the text is seems to be this mess of two different stories. And then we get a preface from Carter Moore himself and then a suppressed preface from Carter Moore. And then the editor comes and says, oh no, oh gosh, not the suppressed preface. I didn't mean for that to be published either. <laughs> so we have, we always have these games with, you know, what the material text is with Hoffman. And the great, what also makes Carter Moore very comic is because it's using this figure of the animal tomcat in order to satirize bourgeois um, aspirations, philistine aspirations as well in the early 19th century. It's also a very rich novel full of illusions. There's Shakespeare absolutely everywhere. There's Rabelais. And this is all part of the, Moore's pretensions to learning. So we have a very sympathetic but also self-aggrandizing protagonist. And it's very, it's, it's really a great novel. 
It sounds almost like Italo Calvino, just sort of 150 years early. Exactly. This is this is the thing. If you look at the reviews of the translation, I think by Anthea Bell of uh, Katamura, it's all to do with this is actually almost a novel that's ahead of its time. That's aware of the fact that it's a novel, um, but that's actually something you can see throughout Hoffmann's works, which is a really interesting thing, and you can see it prefigured in a bit of Ludwig Tieck as well. Um, despite those sort of big figures that you spend a lot of time with researching and, and lecturing about, have you got a favourite romantic writer, perhaps somebody less known? Oh, see, I was going to say Heinrich Heine, who is very well. Oh, no, is, go, go with, go with. Go, Heine, okay, I, I, we slagged him off earlier. I slagged him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I've been I've been treated to know how you slagged him off then. Uh, so uh, Heinrich Heine is. I mean, this this is a very conventional choice. So I have to to confess, but the reason why I find Heine so interesting interesting is because he was interested in absolutely everything and so to understand Heine well you have to really understand what's going on from the 1810s through to the 1850s not just in the German context but also in the French context as well because he spent so long in exile and the more you learn about that time the more you realize that Heine's you know very well crafted verse but also his his attacks on other writers his political ta- attacks on other writers aren't necessarily altogether well founded or particularly generous towards the literary field so he's an intriguing example of what was it like to be a poet a, a very ambitious poet in the early 19th century and also the other reason why he's interesting is because he's aware of his position as the last of the romantics and he's writing then literary history and placing himself in it at the same time trying to act to both a German and a French audience. So it's sort of that transnational element that makes Heine quite interesting. I hope I've managed to save Heine for you. No, those were exactly my criticisms. I was saying that he'd become a bit of a poster boy in modern Germany for everything that's great about that period. Um, And also that he he was so, um, towards the end of of his, uh, or towards the later phase of his uh, writing, certainly quite critical of the romantics that I like. So so hence why it's a very personal thing with me, I think. I'm going to break you two up before it gets ugly. Um, (laughs) Johnny, you won your recent award for your research on Carolina von Gunderoda. Um, who was she? Who was she? Um, Carolina von Gunderoda lived from 1780 to 1806. So I said the it's very convenient because she died before the Holy Roman Empire uh, was dissolved. So we have a quite a strong sense that she might be, well, she was actually relatively liberally inclined. So we don't then get the sense of romantic nationalism happening. Gunnarode is is interesting because she's something of an outlier if you look at women writing at the time. So it was very conventional for women to write novels. Uh, Novels were still a relatively low status genre. So novels didn't end up being the dominant literary genre until really the 19th century. And by not writing novels, that's a mark of poetic ambition. So she wrote lyric poetry. She wrote dramas, actually predominantly dramas, dramas called Lesedramen that were supposed to be read rather than performed. And also some prose texts as well. She is intriguing because of how abstract and philosophical some of her work is at the same time. I said before that romantics can be irritating in some ways because they're difficult to understand. Well, her work is quite accessible linguistically, but there's a lot of complexity and sort of working through various different ideas. I was just going to ask if there's a particular um, 
a particular line or a, a poem that you, you took sure. out to kind of showcase her to people who sure um so i've got a little poem called the aeronaut der luftschiffer and what i'll do is i'll probably read out the the german and then just say what's actually going on here. well I, I can introduce you to what's going on so the situation is you've got an aeronaut who's trying to get out into the atmosphere beyond the earth but they failed to do so. And that's, it's sort of part of Gunderhuder's idea is that we're always striving to get beyond ourselves as individuals, but we can never quite get there. There's always something that takes us back. And here it's the fall back down to earth. Uh, so it won't take very long, trust me. Uh, so, uh, Gefahren bin ich im schwankenden Kane auf dem blaulichten Ozeane, der die leuchtenden Sterne umfließt. Habe die himmlischen Mächte begrüßt, war in ihre Betrachtung versunken, habe dem ewigen Äther getrunken, habe dem irdischen ganz mich entwandt, droben die Schriften der Sterne erkannt und in ihren Kreisen und Drehen bildlich den heiligen Rhythmus gesehen, der gewaltig auch jeglichen Klang reißt zu des wohllauts wogenden Drang. And so that's all the rising up. And now we get the, the downward movement in the poem. Aber ach, es ziert mich hernieder, Nebel überschleiert meinen Blick. Und der Erde Grenzen sehe ich wieder, Wolken treiben mich zurück. Wer, das Gesetz der Schwere, es behauptet nun sein Recht, keiner darf sich ihm entziehen von dem irdischen Geschlecht. I just really enjoy that poem. Potentially, the sort of the, the lines at the end is no one who is human can possibly resist the pull of gravity back down to earth. And that's supposed to be to do with then the human condition we strive to get beyond ourselves, but never really can. And the poem really nicely stages this sort of attempt to at ascending to something else, but we can't ever quite reach it. So that's, that's very much the sort of piece of romantic longing, if you will. <laughs> Um, for the sake of our cynical listeners who might be wondering why we're talking about all of these lofty, airy, fairy ideas, are there any lessons do you think that we can draw from the romantics for, for us today? Um, I think it's actually quite... There, there's some very practical things you can learn from romanticism, I'd like to say. <laughs> If we want sort of maxims from romanticism, one of the things we can think about is a sense of never being contented with your sort of humdrum, everyday, mundane reality. There are, you know, there's a real valorization of the imagination of the sort of individual autonomy as well. And that's something that might be useful as well, you know, so we don't just fall back into our, into, um, you know, just our sort of cyclical lives in, in, in sort of a capitalist society too. There, is, there might be other ways and maybe the romantics offer us a route out, out of that. That. So there's the transformative idea of the power of the imagination. And there's also a critical process as well. So a critical process of thinking, thought itself being unending. So the, the romantics are very resistant to the idea of final or neat answers to any questions. And that's particular to early romanticism. When I said before that there are these gnomic statements, it's all about you've got to think further and think on this because there is no way in which we can come to a final answer. And I think that's actually quite a pleasingly liberal thought as well. It allows for discourse, it allows for criticism quite quite nicely too. So those would just be two thoughts, you know, individual imagination and also this sort of liberal idea about criticism. Well, Jonah, thank you for taking us through a solid half century of literature in the space of 20 minutes or so with so much enthusiasm <laughs> and precision. It's been lovely having you on 
Tommy's and Jerry's, and I'm told you've got a book in the pipeline. What's it about, and when and where will our readers be able to get hold of it? Okay, right. So it's, it's, it's in an academic press, and it is a book based on the thesis. It's going to be called then Caroline von Gunnerode, Philosophical Romantic, and it is the first book on Gunnerode in English. So if you're intrigued by uh, the poem that I read or by any information about Gunnerode, that will be the place then to, to find out more about her. It will be published with Legenda, which is, a, which is part of the Modern Humanities Research Association next year, so hopefully in summer next year. Brilliant. Um, well, a hearty Dankeschön from me as well, uh, Joanna, for just regaling us with your brilliant insights into all of this, into this fascinating period. And thank you to our listeners uh, at home as well for listening. Cheerio from Sussex. And Bistan from Berlin. Goodbye. <laughs>